Welcome to Let's Talk FCA, presented by Kroll & Mooring, bringing you the latest developments with the False Claims Act. In today's podcast, we'll focus on the top False Claims Act developments from 2020 and look ahead at what's likely to come in 2021. Our guest today is Brian Tully McLaughlin. Tully is our partner in the Government Contracts Group in our DC office, and he's co-chair of our False Claims Act practice. Tully's practice focuses on False Claims Act investigations and litigation, particularly trial and appellate work. His FCA experience spans procurement fraud, healthcare fraud, defense industry fraud, and he successfully defended FCA cases through trial and appeal, both those brought by Ketam Relators and the Department of Justice alike. And just this last month, Tully co-authored an article published by the government contractor covering 2020's top FCA developments. So welcome, Tully, and thanks for coming back on the podcast today to discuss the biggest FCA developments from last year. Thanks, Manat. Happy to be here. Always happy to talk about the False Claims Act. Well, good. So let's begin with an overview of the 2020 recovery statistics. As many of you know, every year the Department of Justice issues a press release announcing the types and amounts of its recoveries in FCA verdicts and settlements. The DOJ recoveries and settlements in FCA matters in 2020 dropped to its lowest level in 12 years. So in January, the DOJ announced that it recovered $2.2 billion in settlements and judgments in fiscal year 2020. This was down from the over $3 billion that DOJ recovered in fiscal year 2019 and was actually the lowest amount recovered since 2008 when it recovered $1.4 billion. So while there are likely several factors contributing to this downturn, the most obvious was a significant drop in the number of nine-figure settlements that have played a really large role in DOJ's total haul in recent years. Additionally, while there was an uptick in recoveries towards the end of the year, there was also what we perceived to be a marked slowdown at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic with many businesses, government offices, and courts around the country either operating at reduced capacity or, as many of you are well aware, closing altogether. But while the pandemic might have slowed down many courts and businesses, newly filed cases were actually on the rise. So this is interesting. Whistleblowers filed 672 KETAM suits in fiscal year 2020, an increase from the 638 KETAM suits filed in fiscal year 2019. And perhaps even more interesting, the Department of Justice itself brought 250 new actions. This is the highest on record by far since 1994. The agencies other than the Department of Health and Human Services accounted for 133 of these actions, including 29 concerning the Department of Defense. So that more than doubled the 13 DOD-related actions filed by the Department of Justice in fiscal years 2018 and 2019, respectively. So just so there isn't any doubt, it's clear that private relators and the government continue to prioritize FCA enforcement as the primary means of combating and deterring fraud against the government. And with a focus that, again, expands far beyond the healthcare industry. While the total amount recovered by the government was down from what it was in fiscal year 2019, there were still many noteworthy settlements and decisions. So, Tully, let's turn it over to you. What is your take on the statistics? Well, it certainly was a down year, Mana, for recoveries, as you rightly point out. And as you noted, the real driver is the lower number of eight and nine figure recoveries. So, I would 
caution anyone against interpreting that as meaning enforcement is waning, however. Instead, I think really it's that the pandemic slowed down cases, whether they were proceeding through the courts or in an investigation phase. And that had a particular effect on the larger and more complex matters that really do drive DOJ's recoveries year to year. Early this year, though, or early in fiscal year 2021, DOJ has already announced some pretty significant settlements. So I expect that we're going to see those recoveries statistics trending well up again. And just as, if not more important, are the new matters being filed. And as you noted, those were up last year. And the significant increase in matters brought by the government itself is quite notable, particularly because it's not just in the healthcare arena, it's DOD-related cases and cases outside of those areas. So government enforcement, if anything, is on the rise. Agreed. Thanks, Tully. So what's your takeaway on what these particular statistics tell us about FCA enforcement in 2021? Well, in spite of the fact that COVID-19 has slowed some things down, disrupted things last year, and continues to do so to a certain extent now, the government and relators are continuing to bring new cases, and the enforcement priorities are unchanged in certain ways, or if anything, really, they're expanding because COVID-19 is now the next golden goose, we might call it, for both DOJ and relators alike. In fact, just last week, DOJ announced its top current priorities in civil fraud enforcement. And I would say that they are the top priorities for this year, but I don't think it's quite limited to that. It's the top priorities probably even beyond that and may change some depending on current events. But not surprisingly, COVID-19 related fraud is the number one priority along with continued enforcement of fraud associated with the opioid crisis, for which I just saw a new case filed by the government against an individual defendant just in the past week. Other healthcare priorities, some of which may actually overlap with COVID-related fraud, include areas such as billing for medically unnecessary services or failing to provide quality care, like in skilled nursing facilities, and fraud associated with electronic healthcare records and telehealth. All of those things, again, increasing in general because of the pandemic environment that we're in. Last, but certainly not least, and as we had predicted in our article, DOJ also announced that cybersecurity is a priority for enforcement, particularly in light of the recent wave of cyber breaches and attacks that we've been seeing in the news. Thanks, Tully. Yes, all of those areas do look like they are going to be blooming. But speaking of COVID-19, let's focus there and talk about fraud and enforcement related to the outbreak, as well as how we expect the False Claims Act to be used as a tool against COVID-related fraud. As most of you are aware, since the COVID-19 outbreak, Congress has passed several measures to provide more than $2.5 trillion in financial relief to individuals and businesses impacted by COVID-19 including, of course, most notably, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, called the CARES Act for short. The CARES Act created multiple avenues for businesses to seek relief from economic hardship resulting from COVID-19, some of which are programs we've talked about on the podcast before, including the Provider Relief Fund, the Paycheck Protection Program, known as the PPP, and the Main Street Lending Program. So under these programs, 
eligible recipients need to make various attestations and certifications. They have to submit loan applications that include express and implied certifications. And they also have to comply with specific terms and conditions when using the appropriated funds. So to investigate and root out potential fraud and abuse relating to the unprecedented level of federal aid distributed through these programs, the CARES Act actually created several new oversight bodies, including the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC, which is composed of 21 existing agency inspectors general whose mission is to prevent and detect fraud, waste, and abuse and mismanagement in connection with the funds distributed pursuant to the CARES Act. So with that background in mind, Tully, tell us a little bit about the PRAC's actions thus far. Well, the PRAC has issued several reports as it monitors the funds that have been getting doled out. Just a few weeks ago, the PRAC issued a new report that called out two primary and in many cases related fraud risks associated with the administration of pandemic response funds. Those are self-certification by applicants and a lack of due diligence into applicants, both by agencies and private lenders, the latter of whom are particularly involved in PPP loans for small businesses. One of the real highlights here, I would say, is the intense coordination that is occurring across the agencies. And the PRAC is just one example. They're far from the only entity that's looking for potential fraud though. In addition to the normal players, DOJ, US attorney's offices, OIGs of course, there's also a congressional oversight commission and there's a special inspector general for pandemic recovery. So from my perspective, the oversight and enforcement is only just beginning in the civil arena, and it's not going to go away for a long time. So, Tully, what do you think we should expect to see ahead in terms of False Claims Act matters related to COVID funds and programs? Well, get ready. Obviously, anybody who's followed the news at all has seen that there's been a wave of criminal actions. And the latest PRAC report reported that there had been at least 66 criminal actions related to COVID-19 fraud as of that time period from fraud involving PPE, fake vaccines, and of course, PPP loan fraud. And we've seen stories of folks who have applied for such loans and then gone out and bought things like Lamborghinis. So that will continue. But that really is the low-hanging fruit for the government. Those are reprehensible cases, of course, but they're also much easier to prove. So the civil wave is starting, and it's coming, and it will be here to stay for years ahead. The answer is simple as to why, which is follow the money. As you noted, there's been $2.5 trillion in response funds that have been allocated And that amount of money, particularly being doled out in such a short amount of time, is sure to bring a wave of cases, both from relators as well as the government directly. So I think we're going to see a lot of cases coming. We've already heard just this past month in January, the first announced PPP loan fraud settlement under the False Claims Act from a DOJ outpost. And I expect we're going to start seeing more of those, probably a little bit more of a trickle in the months ahead. But by the end of the year, I think we'll probably at a minimum be aware that there are significant investigations going on and probably some suits that perhaps have even gotten unsealed by that point. Thanks, Tolly. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And 
the big takeaway point here is really considering DOJ's commitment to aggressively pursuing fraud related to these COVID-related stimulus programs and the uptick in fraud and investigations and prosecutions that we've historically seen follow federal crisis relief programs, like for example, what we saw after Hurricane Katrina, it really does make sense that we expect abundant FCA investigations and prosecutions related to COVID-19 funding, including of course, as you noted, KETAM actions that will be brought by relators in 2021 and beyond. Well, let's switch gears now to another significant development in FCA matters in 2020. Let's turn to the subject of customs enforcement. So again, by way of background here, importers continue to face additional scrutiny and potential liability for their actions when importing goods into the U.S. And customs duties are a major source of revenue for the government. So importers who evade customs duties stand to gain a significant advantage over competing domestic manufacturers, and they deprive the government of a critical source of substantial revenue. So in addition to administrative penalties imposed by U.S. Customs and Border Protection, what we really saw in 2020 was that relators and the government are now having more success bringing cases under the FCA to crack down on importers who make false statements as to tariff classifications, entered valuation, country of origin, the applicability of anti-dumping or countervailing duties, and other customs and trade-related issues such as free trade eligibility. So that's been a big development. Some of the significant cases there include one where in July 2020, a California district court judge denied a motion to dismiss in a case called U.S. v. Vanderwater International Inc. In that case, the complaint alleged that defendants imported welded outlets from China under false descriptions or that they had mixed them with duty-free products to escape paying a 183% tariff that resulted in over $200 million in unpaid fees to the government. So there, the judge found that the Litigation concerns concrete, non-hypothetical allegations that defendants made specific false statements that caused the governmental losses. So that was one of the trade matters we saw in FCA jurisprudence. That same month, a company called CWD Holdings LLC agreed to pay $8 million to resolve allegations in two KETAM cases that it had violated the FCA by knowingly avoiding paying tariffs on imported brake pads by falsely claiming that the mounted pads it imported, which carried a 2.5% tariff, were actually unmounted brake pads, not subject to any tariff. So that was a second item in that area. And then the government also announced one of its largest ever FCA settlements in the customs arena in September of 2020. Tully, can you tell us about the settlement involving customs duties in USX Rail Johnson v. Lind AG? Happy to. This is certainly a booming area, and I think we're going to see more enforcement here. So the Johnson case is a classic example of how the reverse False Claims Act provision is being used to turn customs duties, issues, and violations into fraud recoveries for the government. With a reverse false claim, the defendant has avoided an obligation to pay money to the government, usually by making false statements. Now, sometimes that occurs where an overpayment is made by the government in the context of a contract, for instance, and is wrongfully retained by the contractor. But here in these customs cases, it's typically the avoidance of duties that would otherwise be applied. 
The whistleblower here alleged that Linde avoided paying tariffs and duties for nearly six years by misrepresenting the nature, the classification, and the value of the imported goods, as well as the applicability of free trade agreements. We've been watching this area for a few years now and talking about it being one where we expected to see a rise in enforcement and recoveries, and this is an example. I expect we will see more of these resulting in settlements and perhaps being litigated through the courts in the coming years. Agreed. And with these customs-based FCA claims on the rise, contractors operating in the international trade area are just likely to be subjected to additional potential liability as Customs and Border Patrol, DOJ, and importantly, of course, relators are collaborating to stem unfair trade practices. But let's now turn to an update on materiality. Not surprisingly, materiality remained front and center in the fourth year after the Supreme Court's landmark decision in Universal Health Services, Inc., the U.S. XREL, Escobar, a case you've all heard about. So whether at the pleading stage, summary judgment, trial, or on appeal, this element is now often the most material of them all, no pun intended, in evaluating the viability or the merits of an FCA case. So one of the important decisions for defendants this past year was USX Rel Janssen v. Lawrence Memorial Hospital. In that case, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit affirmed summary judgment because the relator failed to establish materiality. The Tenth Circuit first rejected the relator's argument that the materiality analysis focuses solely on an objective, reasonable person standard. And instead, the Tenth Circuit observed that the Supreme Court in Escobar focused on the likely reaction of the recipient, which included both subjective and objective analysis. As a result, the Tenth Circuit found that evidence that the government was notified of a defendant's allegedly improper conduct, including from detailed allegations from a former employee, but the government did not take action against the defendant, was evidence that demonstrated immateriality, even if the government did not have actual knowledge of the alleged noncompliance. Instead, the government's inaction in the face of those allegations undermined a finding of materiality. It's an important case to point out, Mana. Janssen illustrates the holistic analysis that courts conduct on materiality and the demanding standard that must be met to demonstrate materiality while rejecting the notion that a materiality inquiry does not consider the actual effect on the government. Another case that I think is important from this past year is one that did not go the defendant's way, a case out of the Second Circuit called U.S. v. Strzok, but had some takeaways, I think, in other cases, depending on your circumstances there. That was a fraud in the inducement case. And an important ruling by the Second Circuit there first was that the materiality inquiry in a fraudulent inducement case applies both to the government's decision to award the contract and to its decision to pay the individual claims that are ultimately submitted under that contract. And the government in that case was asserting that the materiality inquiry only applied to the former and not the latter. So that was an important takeaway for other cases down the road. Second, in analyzing the complaints allegations with respect to the government's response to noncompliance in the mine run of cases, as the Supreme Court has mandated, the court discounted the importance of post hoc prosecutions or other enforcement actions. 
finding that allowing the government to rely solely on those kinds of actions to satisfy a materiality finding would actually be, quote, materiality manufacturing. So instead, the Strzok court emphasized the importance of allegations that the government actually refused to pay claims upon learning of noncompliance in question. And again, that actually has some ties with the Janssen case and has a takeaway for defendants there in spite of the ultimate way that that case went, which was a reversal of a dismissal at the motion to dismiss phase. One other thing I would note, Mana, about materiality and the cases that have been coming out in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision in Escobar in 2016 is that there could be a change coming down the pike from Congress. Senator Grassley, who's well known in the False Claims Act bar as having an instrumental effect on the 1986 amendments to the False Claims Act that significantly empowered relators in particular, has recently commented that he does not like how courts are applying materiality in many cases, and he thinks that they're applying it too strictly. It appears that he may not even accept the decision from the Supreme Court in its analysis of the materiality element for False Claims Act cases And he has suggested that he may begin working on some legislation to clarify that standard further. Thanks, Sully. Yes, Senator Grassley has definitely remained involved in FCA legislation over the years. So we'll continue to keep up with information that comes out of his office. In other developments, another issue that we've been following closely, especially since the Granston memo was issued back in January of 2018, is the scope of the government's dismissal authority under the FCA. So 2020 was a headline year for circuit courts reviewing the government's KETAM dismissal authority. Over a single two-week period, the Seventh and Ninth Circuits became the first two circuit courts to issue decisions on lower court denials of a motion to dismiss by DOJ, with the Seventh Circuit enumerating a new standard for evaluating such requests. Tully, tell us about the Seventh Circuit's decision in the UCB matter. Happy to, Mana. And let me just start by talking about the competing standards that are out there. When the government moves to dismiss a KETAM, the statute doesn't provide what the actual standard of review is or whether there is one in evaluating such a motion to dismiss. And so courts have developed their own standards. And the two competing standards that were out there until the Seventh Circuit's decision were one that was set forth by the D.C. Circuit in a case called Swift v. U.S. And that standard recognizes that the government has unfettered discretion to dismiss a key TAM action. The competing standard, also quite deferential, but maybe not quite as much as the D.C. Circuit's, is one that the Ninth Circuit espoused in a case called U.S. X-Rail Sequoia Orange, in which it required the government to identify a valid government purpose and show a rational relation between dismissal and accomplishment of that purpose. Now, both standards are highly deferential, but there has been a question in all the other circuits when the government moves to dismiss a case and the relator objects, as you can expect that they will as to how the courts should review those motions to dismiss. And the Seventh Circuit has now become the Third Circuit to weigh in with its own standard and the Fourth Circuit overall to weigh in on this. And essentially what the Seventh Circuit ruled was that the government has to intervene first in the case 
And once they do intervene, they are a plaintiff and a named plaintiff, and they can then dismiss pursuant to Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure. In effect, that basically means that their discretion is probably closer to the D.C. Circuit standard of being pretty much unfettered. I expect that you'd have to prove something like fraud involved in the government's decision to overturn that standard. So this was a welcome development for defendants, and I think for the government as well, who usually takes the position in circuits that haven't ruled on this standard, that the unfettered discretion standard is the one that should apply, but that they are able to meet either standard in any event. And so now we've got three standards, but again, all of them very deferential. Thanks, Tully. That's right. And if in addition to the Circuit Court of Appeals weighing in on the applicable standard here, we've also seen Senator Grassley involved in addressing this issue. Just last year, he raised the idea of an amendment to the False Claims Act to clarify the standard that applies for a Department of Justice's motion to dismiss. I know that he also spoke to this issue very recently in a KETAM conference that you attended. Tully, do you want to tell us a little bit about Senator Grassley's remarks there? Sure. So last week at the FBA's KETAM conference, which was an excellent conference, Senator Grassley, in his prepared remarks, talked about the C2A authority of DOJ and remarked that he believes that, as he said with materiality, that the courts and the government in this situation have it wrong and that they're being too generous and deferential to the government when it wishes to move to dismiss. He emphasized that he believes that the government should be required to present evidence in open court to support its stated reasons for seeking a dismissal so that transparency is provided to the public and reassurance to other would-be relators that the government is not going to simply arbitrarily dismiss their claims. And he, again, has said that he is working on draft legislation to accomplish that. I would note that from my perspective, I'm not so sure that this is really an issue that Congress needs to address in spite of the fact that cases in which the government has moved to dismiss have ticked up a fair amount over the past few years. We're still talking about only maybe 50 or 60 cases out of nearly 700 or more that are filed each year. And that, to me, does not indicate that there is a real issue here with DOJ abusing its authority in moving to dismiss cases. And I think, at a minimum, those on the defense side and probably a lot of our colleagues in the government would agree that the government often declines to intervene but does not move to dismiss cases that really don't have much, if any, merit to them. So we'll have to wait and see if Senator Grassley pushes forward legislation or not. Agreed. So we'll continue to monitor that. And I'll just say here that there were numerous other noteworthy case law developments in 2020, including some that involve causation, the Rule 9b pleading standard, the statute of limitations and the relators bar, and government officials as defendants. So Though time limits us from addressing all of these today for more in-depth analysis and case law citations for the top 2020 FCA developments, please feel free to check out the feature comment in the January 20th edition of The Government Contractor, which was published by Tully and his co-authors, our Kroll colleagues, Lindsay Gordon, Nikechi Kanu, and Jared Engelking. So with that, I think I 
want to ask you to close us out here, Tully, by giving us your thoughts on what you would say the last year's developments ultimately indicate about the year ahead. Well, I think that, as I've said probably for the past several years, the False Claims Act administration's changed, but the False Claims Act is here to stay. It is a huge tool for the government in civil enforcement and recovery. And that's not going to change at all, other than that I think we're likely going to see increased enforcement efforts just with something of a different focus, particularly because of COVID and the funds that have been doled out there. We're going to see a lot of focus on looking for fraud cases and opportunities in that area. I would also note that it doesn't look like we are necessarily going to have any Supreme Court decisions coming out too soon, at least in the False Claims Act arena. The Supreme Court just declined to take up a few cases that were pending before it with respect to the standard of objective falsity in healthcare cases involving medical judgment. So they're not going to weigh in on that circuit split. Other than that, though, I think, again, with related to pandemic fraud, but other areas too, we're going to see more cases that are being brought, not just by relators, but by the government. And perhaps we may see at least the beginnings of some draft legislation that might further protect or further incentivize relators and the government in their ability to use the False Claims Act as an enforcement tool. Well, thanks, Tali, for giving us your thoughts and your projections on what's to come ahead under the False Claims Act. That's going to be all for today's episode of Let's Talk FCA. If listeners have any follow-up questions on any of these topics, please feel free to reach out to me at 213-443-5563 or Tully at 202-624-2628. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Let's Talk FCA. Let's Talk FCA is brought to you by Kroll & Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash letstalkfca. FCA.